Hello and welcome to UW Oshkosh Police Department's UWOPD On The Mic podcast. This is a podcast developed by the UW Oshkosh Police Department that focuses on having authentic conversations around safety, policing, resources, and questions that we hear from our community members. The idea is to provide our community members with answers to questions that will ultimately increase their desire to partner with us and really other law enforcement agencies that will help them solve problems, reduce the fear in our community, and build stronger relationships with each other. And I'm super excited. Thank you so much for joining us. I got a couple guests. We're going to introduce ourselves. My name is Chris Darman. I'm the acting chief of police here at UW Oshkosh, and I've been teaching with uh, one of our guests for quite a while now, so I'll let him introduce himself again here for part two. And then we also have another guest in the room who will tell you who he is. So, uh, My name is Dr. Joe Peterson. I'm a professor of geology here at UW Oshkosh. And yeah, we've been doing these uh, active threat, active shooter uh, workshops and training sessions for the better part of a decade, I guess. So uh, yeah, I'm happy to be back for part two. And my name is Chance Dunkel. I am a police sergeant at the UW Oshkosh Police Department. Uh, right now I'm on day shift focusing mainly on training. So training-wise, I'm a level one alert or advanced law enforcement rapid response training instructor and a first responder medical trainer. Uh, pretty new at that. Going through EMT basic right now, just trying to learn as much as I can on the medical side of the, the house and get better at it. And you're on the Winnebago County SWAT team, right? So I am. Yep. Yeah. So... Sergeant Dunkel brings some good information in the room. And in this session here in part two, we're going to talk about what happens if you're caught in a situation. If you've been in a training with Dr. Peterson and I, we typically talk quite a bit about proactive things that we can do to resolve a situation yeah. like this before anything would occur. But we also realize that, you know, it's important to understand skills to try to manage through a situation. And so as we talk through this part two session here, I think Dr. Peterson will share a little bit more about his experience so you can understand from his lens the things that he experienced in a classroom, but also we're going to share national response methods that uh, we all kind of understand. So, you know, maybe to start this off, Dr. Peterson, if you could just share a little bit about the situation that you had to live through. Sure. Yeah. So in 2008, I was a graduate student at Northern Illinois University where I was finishing my uh, PhD and I was teaching a, a big pit course in oceanography, actually an intro geology course at about 180 students in there. And on February 14th, 2008, man walked into the classroom and immediately started opening fire on the class uh, with a sawed off shotgun. And in a very short period of time, unfortunately, he took the lives of five students, injured about 12, 13 of us, and then took his own life. And I can go into some more detail as, as we get through this, but uh, so what I'm trying to bring to this conversation is, is a survivor's perspective, as, as well as an educator's perspective, since we're talking about this, of course, as we talked about in part one, these are our skills and things to think about like anywhere in life, but since we're here on a college campus focusing on that, it's a little more relevant to, to the, the current setting that we're in. Yeah, and something that I've heard you talk about over the years that you've presented on this topic is that you initially thought when that person entered the room that it was kind of a training exercise, like your brain went to this, this isn't yeah, real. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so just to also keep in mind, you know, the, the timing of this happened, uh, you know, Virginia Tech had, was less than a year before. So actually there had been a lot of conversation on campus at, at NIU about Virginia Tech and about how campus security was going to be ramping up a little bit, how they were doing training sessions, uh, police and, and local law enforcement on and off campus were doing some training exercises and trying to come up with a plan 
of you know, what would we do if this happened here? And there were some students that had scrawled things on a bathroom wall suggesting possibly a bomb threat or an act of violence, and those were all investigated, but nobody was taking it too seriously on campus. I mean, law enforcement and, and administrators certainly were. They were checking it out, and they ended up not being anything. But it was a conversation that was going on on campus. And then less than a year later, you know, I, we find one happening right right on our campus. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that and some of those initial thoughts. And I know we'll talk through that in some of the, sli- in the next sure. couple minutes here. But I was even thinking, you know, just to go back to the part one episode, we talk a little bit about a Rolodex. I mean, the whole idea here is that we actually want to take your, I guess, if you envision a mm-hmm. Rolodex in your head, and I think we described that in episode one yeah. or part one, the idea is that we'd stick an index card in there so mm-hmm. that maybe your brain isn't stuck in the, this is a training exercise. I think that's kind of the natural response that we have as it, humans. It really was. And and yeah, like to, to get more back to, to your initial question, yeah, the, the initial thoughts that I had when, when this guy just kicked in the door and started firing was, well, this is a weird drill. And why would you... Why would you do a drill like this? There's no warning. There's no, and that's, yeah, that's your brain naturally kind of trying to make sense of something major that's happening. And it only lasted for, I'd say about a second. And then I realized, okay, this is actually happening. I need to do something. But in talking to some of the other students uh, from that classroom, there was a a wide variety of of responses. I wasn't the only one who thought this is fake or this is a a prank or, or some kind of a training exercise. There were some students that literally just froze in their seats. And, and luckily, they, they they did survive, and they're okay, you know, physically. But that that was a, a response by some students as well. It was just complete, you know, body lock. Yeah. So, so and also in part one, we talk about how quickly these situations transpire. So you kind of describe gunmen enters a room, starts shooting at people. There's no time to really think. And so the idea behind part two here is that we help you understand in the moment what's the best thing to do to stay safe right Right. so we're going to talk a little bit about that i mean sergeant dunkel mentioned that he's an alert level one instructor i'm also alert level one instructor and alert is advanced law enforcement rapid response training and that's out of texas state university and in most of what they push out they'll talk about a response method called avoid deny defend we typically teach run hide fight and I think those are very much the same. The only difference for me in my mind is that run, hide, fight is more recognizable. I think mm-hmm. it's more of a thing in our country that we realize. And so we stick with that because it's easy. I used to teach early on that, you know, run, hide, and fight. If you take out the fight piece of that, run and hide are things I do with my children. And I always just think about, you know, I'm not really paying attention. I'm just running and hiding, which is why alert does avoid, deny, defend. It's basically more focused in on how do you manage the situation properly. Yeah. And there's a lot of these types of, you know, uh, types of training, avoid, deny, defend, run, hide, fight. And they're all pretty much doing the same thing. So whatever sticks better in your brain. But one thing that I think it's also important to note is that as, as we talk about run, hide, fight, or avoid, deny, defend, or ALICE, or any of these other, uh, other, other I guess, security systems, I don't really know how else to describe them, but th- this isn't a linear conversation. It's not like a checklist, like, well, I tried to run, and now I'm going to hide. And Maybe it is that situation, but this is very unique to whatever the setting is in which it's happening. So what happened in my classroom yeah, obviously there's parallels to what happened at Virginia Tech or or Columbine in the fact, the fact that you have a, an intruder there causing a great amount of harm to people. But we can't predict how every situation is going to be. Every one of these is unique. So 
keep in mind as, as we're talking about these, it's whatever situation you find yourself in, and hopefully you never do, just don't let that be the first time you thought about it. Yeah, that's a great point. So we're going to talk about run, hide, fight, you know, and we're going to talk about what those mean. And when Dr. Peterson says it's not linear, that's accurate to how we can teach this. And it's maybe it's even better that this is a podcast because the way I kind of set this up is if you're in a space and you have to respond to or, or react to an active threat situation and you're in the immediate proximity of it, you have to think about two things in your mind before you ever get there. Am I responsible for somebody who cannot be responsible for themselves? And I call them tiny humans. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that age bracket is. I think people kind of typically know the people that they're with who are classified as a tiny human, but that would be somebody who can't make decisions for themselves or they don't have enough experience or understanding to manage a circumstance like this. So I usually try to say somewhere in that 11 to 15 year old range is probably or less mm -hmm. where you have to be thinking about their safety and the way that you manage a situation. So we'll talk about that, but take that out for right now. Really, we're going to focus on if you're an adult and you can make decisions, here's how you would manage a situation. Yeah. And before I get into the specifics, I just want to share also a, a stat that I think is really important. So as we look at the last 20, 25 years of data, there, there's a really good statistic that kind of helps us set up how we can stay successful in a moment like this. And that doesn't mean this couldn't change tomorrow, but about 98% of these situations that occur, there's one person who's committing the act. So it's one mm -hmm. single person. And then the other two-ish percent of the times where there's more than one person, there's always been those people right together in the same space. And so again, that doesn't mean that can't change tomorrow. But what's really important to understand about this is if you're in a situation and you're in close proximity to where you see the shooting or something's occurring and you go in the other direction it's very, very likely that you're going to have a safe route out. Yep. You're going to have a safe, safe escape from that area. And so that's just be mindful of that as you create a plan or decide or you see what's going on that you could leave in the opposite direction as long as you have a safe route out from there and you make that decision and you're probably going to be more safe leaving that, that location. So just a stat I want to share. As we think about run, so we always kind of start with run. If you're an adult, you're caught in this situation and there's going to be a lot of different ways you could learn that there's a situation going on, right? Somebody could enter your space with a gun and start shooting. Here at UW Oshkosh, you could get a text message that says, Titan alert, there's a shooter at, and then a location. You could hear screaming and yelling. You could hear a suspicious noise that sounds like many different things. I mean, if you're outside and you hear what sounds like fireworks or gunshots or something of that nature, and it's persistent and in a close succession, it's something you should be paying attention to, right? That could be a situation that might be shots fired, somebody shooting a gun. If you're in a concert setting, uh, a large setting, or just a group setting with a lot of people and it's kind of noisy and you start hearing screaming and people running, that could be a sign to trigger you that you would have to try to pay attention to make some decisions. If you're in a classroom setting and you know, I, I used to listen to Christina Anderson. She uh, has some YouTube out there. She's a survivor from Virginia Tech. She talks about uh, being in a classroom, and the noise that she describes hearing was an axe chopping wood. So if you kind of just think about that sound, it wasn't one axe chopping one piece of wood. It was a persistent axe chopping wood kind of noise, which caught their attention and then made them kind of investigate. 
what's mm-hmm. happening. And then that gave them an inclination. We need to do something. We need to make a decision about something. And so it's hard to, to give you a black and white depiction of exactly what you're going to hear or see. But what we describe in law enforcement is some sort of active intelligence. So people running, people screaming, a noise that seems out of place, uh, some sort of a situation that's just not ordinary that causes your attention to shift to it. And then you have to make decisions. So I mean, I know for a lot of law enforcement, we'll sit in a squad car and mental script some things. You know what I mean? Like if this were to happen, here's how we would manage it. And so I think as we go through this, that's kind of what we're looking for is that you just process, if I learned about this in this certain way, here's what I would do. And so we always start with the first thing, which is run. And so even though this isn't linear, if you're an adult and you're in a caught in a situation and you can get out, you absolutely should leave the area. and, And honestly... It starts way before that. And this is where I love what you kind of described, Dr. Peterson, about being on an airplane and thinking about how do you process before you even get there. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, like uh, this is, and I think we talked about this a bit in in the last episode, but, you know, if you're on an airplane, they don't let you get off the ground before they go through, you know, a, a safety demonstration of what to do in case of an emergency water landing or loss of cabin pressure, which you have absolutely no control over that situation. Yeah. Uh, But they make you go through that safety, uh, you know, protocol. Uh, You walk into a movie theater. They've got the the aisles illuminated with the little lights and there's exit signs posting. It's it's something we take for granted that exits are posted. We should be paying a little bit of attention to that to know, okay, if I entered in a a space through one, one one doorway or one entrance, are there other ways of getting out of here if I can't go back out the way that I came, which is our natural inclination? So there's nothing wrong with with doing this. When you go to the movies before the movie starts, take two seconds and just look around. Know where your exits are in the event of some kind of emergency. Maybe it's a fire. Maybe it is an active threat such as this. No, no other ways around. In, in my situation, there were only two entrances to that room. There was the main door at the end of the auditorium that everybody filed in through. And then there was a door up on the stage, uh, on the other side of the stage from where I was standing, that was a, a back entrance through an annex. And students did know about that entrance, but that's where the gunmen entered from. And occasionally we would have students walk in in the middle of class or towards the end of class, cutting through the building to get out of the cold. Um, and that's what my initial thought was too. When I saw the door fly open, I was like, oh, somebody's trying to cut through the building again. And in this case, that, that wasn't uh, wasn't what happened. There was a door immediately behind me that I had known was there, but I'd never looked in there, and it was a locked AV closet, so it wouldn't have helped me anyway. But I only had one exit that was available to me, and that was the way that I came in because the gunman was standing in front of the door that would get me out the other way. So that would kind of bring us then into the next, what do you do in that situation? But, yeah, know where your exits are and, and use whatever ones are available to you. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that. I think, you know, and I know just processing through this again, it's nice to think about before I get into a room or before I get into a space, what do I do? And I'm, I'm, I'm not great at that either. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll walk in and I won't even pay attention to like what was on the door. Uh, could I get out here? Is there an exit to the left down the hallway? I kind of came in through the right down this one corridor and came in the room, but I never looked past where I went to. Is there another exit just mm-hmm. past there? Once I'm in the room, I mean, I feel pretty comfortable. I think for law enforcement, it's a little different. And I'm going to assume for you, Sergeant Dunkel, you probably have the same thing. Like you sit in and you process a little bit like, all right, who's in here? What are they doing? What do they look like? I mean, even today when I was at intake court, 
uh, I was looking at the different exits and because I had somebody with me too that I was responsible for. So if something happens, go here and this is what I'm going to do. So just mentally rehearsing and uh, even in times where you're going to class or going anywhere, if there's a different door that you can just try out, try try that out because if you're using the same door over and over and over, when something happens, you're going to go straight to that door. Mm-hmm. So maybe try that alternative entrance or exit uh, to get that mentally rehearsal. And so, and, and I don't want to necessarily advocate for property destruction, but if you're in a room and there's only one door, but there's windows that don't open, I assure you, you can open them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you this, know. this really does move us to the next phase. So, so let's just land on this. So if you're in a space and there's somebody there who's causing harm, you got to get out. So whether that's in the same room, whether it's in the hallway right near or in a room right next to it, or even in a building, however you feel comfortable and you're in your, you can make the decisions about whether you're safe, you should leave as you're leaving. There's a few things that we usually try to tell people, which is that you got to be thinking about how do I best exit the building? Do I, when can I call When is it safe where I can call 911? Uh, are there other folks who aren't necessarily attentive to what's going on entering the space? And can you somehow warn them? It's not about slowing down to warn them. It's just about kind of creating enough, hey, there's a problem here. Wait, maybe it'll make a little commotion and try to get them to alert the fact that there's an issue and not continue in that direction. Uh, we always try to just tell people best practices that if they're not paying attention and they keep going, you, you got to keep yourself safe. But I'm also going to say, I understand myself and I'd probably put a little more energy into making sure, Hey, I need you to listen to me so you can come here. I joke a little bit because sometimes I'll be walking around campus and I'll just want to say hi to a student or, Hey, how's it going? And they walk right past me and mm-hmm. somebody's like, Oh, they're, they're not paying attention to it. And I'm like, Oh, they got those little earbuds yeah. in their ear. And that's a, that's a, 2020 and beyond thing like everybody's got those little ear pods so a little extra boost to say hey come on let's go might be a great way to consider how you get folks out so leave the area quickly and do the best you can to exit that space the other thing i'll typically talk about here too is if you get a titan alert or or a text message or some sort of notification because if you're not at uw oshkosh and you're listening to this podcast and you get notified that there's an active shooter in close proximity to you maybe it's in the next building over what do you do in that situation? And so that's really, to me, I usually tell people that's specific based on their own understanding of the circumstance, right? So knowing that stat that I shared early on, that there's typically one shooter, or if there's two shooters, they're right next to each other. Again, there could be an even more serious situation where it's more of a terrorist type thing, that type of stuff. That's going to be different. You want to be more attentive and alert to that. But if I feel safe in a space, I might stay in there. You know what I mean? I might lock my local door, do the best I can to pay attention to what's going on and and be okay. Or I don't feel safe and I'm going to leave. That's really based on your own decision process. Like if you leave and you feel safe and you can get to your car and you get out of there or whatever device it is to get to where you need to get out of there, nobody's going to bother you with that. We're just going to get you the information so you can make an informed decision about how to get out of that space. So, And information is really important uh, to bring up because in, in the in the moment of these types of things happening, the information is all over the place. You know, nobody really knows what's going on. Everybody is heightened. The adrenaline's pumping. They're scared. Um, and, and this happened at NIU, and I know it's happened at a number of other um, mass casualty events like this, where somebody is injured and they leave the space, they run, 
and they seek shelter on the other side of campus. Now, somebody sees this person, hopefully not too much, but you know, injured and bleeding, and now we don't know, well, is there a shooter there? Is there? Are there two? Are they all over campus? And that happened at, at NIU for a while. There was a, a warning that there might be a second person. So, and I didn't know, ex- I was in the room when it happened, and I didn't really know what was going on until I talked to law enforcement a few hours later. So yeah. it's a lot of chaos. I think getting to a space and or or seeking shelter where you're at is you know as long as you're away from the danger as well as you can perceive that's going to be the best practice. Yeah, that's great advice. And I would say even thinking back to uh, the Las Vegas situation, mm-hmm. uh, it's probably 2017 or 2016. There were probably close to 100 secondary active threat calls to Las Vegas PD, like they, people just called and said there's an active threat at the airport. Well, it wasn't at the airport, but there were literally people jumping over the fences to get away from that situation yep. and ended up injured in those areas, and it, it did cause that concern and, and all over the place, all over Vegas. So yeah, it's they, just thinking about that. Yeah, they went across active runways to get somewhere safe. So Yeah, there was a lot going on, and that's a, obviously a very – different circumstance but you know we think about that here here at uw oshkosh too where we're planning and preparing for our art outdoor concerts right so yeah. it's just being more alert being more aware we knowing that we as a police department think about those things and how we can proactively manage situations like that but we definitely i mean i, mean, I think i mentioned this in the last one too we our motto is partnering with our community to solve problems we can't do this thing without everybody kind of being alert paying attention and listening in on these things so that we can be more informed so really that's number one mm-hmm. is to get out exit the area uh, or, or we call it run right the next two kind of depend on the circumstance and so you know it's either hide or fight uh and i think dr peterson alluded to this let's just say that uh we hear that noise whatever causes our suspicion and we go to the door or or we we go to an area where we can kind of see what's going on and we're not in a in a place to get out safely then we have to barricade we have to figure out how do i lock the door what if there isn't a lock on the door what if i don't have a key what if it takes a key to lock the door how can i lock it well do you have a belt do you have a like a there's you know like a wood wedge or i mean in a training i'll I'll talk about a macbook or a laptop you know can you jam a macbook or laptop under the door you know what do you have in your space that you can use to create pressure on a door are there tables chairs uh, different items of furniture that you can pile in front of a door even if it opens out it doesn't matter which direction it opens if you can block that area and create enough barrier between you and that threat that could help you out actually sitting in a room where there's a window so there's a door and a window and i see a lock on the inside so i could just flip a switch and it would lock the door but then there's a full-size window next to that door So I would still want to figure out how do we pick this table up and get it in front of that window. And then we'd be looking at how do we get out of here? Like we're stuck in this room. There's really only one door in this room. Is there a secondary way out? And if there isn't, then you also have to create a plan for what if they get in here? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Seconds count. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even if you've got a door that opens outward and you stack up a bunch of stuff in front of the door and let's say the attacker opens the door and now they're left with this big pile of stuff. It's going to take them a few seconds to move that stuff if they're really determined on getting in the room. But those are seconds where they're not firing mm-hmm. and it's where their their hands aren't, you know, on a trigger. And that can that can save a life, that those few seconds. So 
anything, anything that you can put between you and the attacker uh, is, is going to, to better your situation. Yeah, that's great advice. And also I think about what if I don't have any tables or furniture or anything I can stack in front of there? Can I use a belt? Do I have some sort of a mechanism to tie around the door? You just got to do, you got to, this is where I just process for a minute, like pausing for a second and go, okay, how would I manage that door? I mean, I can look at this door right here. There's about an inch gap between the floor and the door. So I'd have to put something pretty thick in there to create pressure enough that you wouldn't be able to open it. But there's much less of a gap between the jam and the actual door. So if I can squeeze the things in there, or there's three of us in here, if we're all kind of pressured up against that door, that might be an opportunity. The one thing we do also add here, though, is that there's a difference between cover and concealment. So if I'm kind of standing next to a door that has a giant window and somebody shoots at that window, it's likely that that bullet's going to penetrate the window and come through and could hit me. If it's drywall right next to that door, that's also a penetrable type of substance. So thinking about that, uh, the door is probably going to be safer, especially if it's a metal door, but it's still considered concealment, which is kind of that hides you, but doesn't necessarily stop a bullet from entering that space. So just kind of thinking about that. If we block the door and we kind of lock the door. The The second thing you should be thinking about is, well, how do you find a second place out of here, but also getting on that 911 call again. And if you can't talk, and usually what we say is, you know, like turn your lights off, turn turn everything off, make it look like you're not inside the room, but dial 911, leave it open line if you can't talk and let them listen because they're going to get intelligence. They're going to hear noise. They're going to hear kind of things going on in the background. They might hear shouting. They might have a GPS pinpoint on the location and get people there. I mean, to your point, Dr. Peterson, I mean, you're saying that it could be, you know, seconds, right? Mm -hmm. Seconds where something counts. So if you cause their attention to be stuck on the door for a few minutes, that gives you an opportunity to kind of help others call 911 and get people processed and moving to the location. The average police response time in the U.S. is three minutes, right? So if we can make a phone call, that may get folks into that space quicker. And if you're inside of a room and there's one door and you've barricaded it and you're worried about somebody coming in, next best place to be would be to create a plan very close to the door out of the view of somebody outside the room, right? So when they come in the room, you surprise them and you can right. attack them and you can figure out how to create a dysfunction so that you can get out and move back past that space. And, and to kind of just circle back a little bit to, you know, we were, you mentioned Christina Anderson describing what a shot sounds like. Well, it depends on the space. It depends on what kind of weapon they're using. Like there's, these are all variables, whatever you see in the movies, that's, you know, a sound effects artist, a Foley artist using a, a a sound on loop that's not always what they sound like in various spaces so if you're in a room and the door is closed and you've got a bunch of people in there and you hear something odd outside and you hear people running outside it might be you know there's that instinct for some people to be like oh i'm gonna go outside and check it out that's gonna draw attention so maybe the best thing to do in that situation is if, if the shooter isn't looking at you and they don't know you're in there then yeah lights off get away from the doors, get away from the windows, try to keep that door from being open, start barricading things up and stay quiet. And it, I can't say in all situations, but in, in a vast majority of these situations, the, the gunman just walks past. don't have a lot of time to sit there and fiddle around with trying to get a door open, especially if somebody's already calling 911. Yeah, the time's ticking for them. Mm -hmm. yep. yep. Yeah, you called it. They know there's limited time. And so we talked about that in part one. So if you miss some of that too, yeah. like some of that time frame is 
short. There's a, a small window of time there. So yeah, I was just going to say that we mentioned a lot of things to do in a very quick time frame. So at least for me, and just pulling from when we do trainings, when we do special events, is delegating duties. Like, all right, if something happens, I want you to call nine one one. I want you to um, block the door yep. and trying to delegate those out to take care of all those things in a very quick time frame. So. Yep. That's really good information. And it's funny, as I was speaking about these things, I think, well, if there's one person in the room, you got to do, you got to figure out what's your priority in the moment. If there's two or three people in the room, you definitely can do some of the, Hey, I got this, I got this. If there's 10, 15, 25, 30 people in the room, you're going to have a good sense of some people can do this. Some people can do this. And you really got to work and coordinate as a team to kind of solve how you can, you, you, you know, you do it one at a time. We can, I got this problem solved. Now move to the next one and figure that one out. So, but creating that plan is really important. So we've talked about run, we've talked about hide. The next one is really fight. We've talked about this a little bit. If somebody were to get in that space after you've barricaded it, you have to take enough action to cause dysfunction for them so that you can, you know, save your life or save other people's lives. If you don't have an opportunity to run or barricade hide, there's only one resort. There's only one thing left, right? It's a last resort and you should fight. You should fight to save your life and save the lives of others. And so the only thing I typically say here is, you know, there's a, there's a law out there. It's called privilege. Uh, Wisconsin gives you the right to defend yourself and others. It, it is as a last resort. And when you feel like your life is threatened, but you certainly have the capability and legal right to do that, that legal justification, uh, you know, and so then, what do I have on me? What can I use? Do I have something around me that I can use as a weapon? Can I improvise a weapon? Uh, we, we teach law enforcement. We teach a verbal stun, which can be very loud and effective to create just a very short window of opportunity to kind of distract a person and then take advantage of them. It surprises them enough that they pause for a second where you could maybe do whatever to dis disarm them or uh, get them on the floor or whatever it is. So, you know, that's kind of the last thing is that you have to fight and be able to make a decision to figure out how you commit to your actions and take action against that shooter so that you can save somebody else's life. So, you know, whatever's available. And, and usually on the PowerPoint, we're doing the presentation for this one. We have a picture of a fire extinguisher, which I, you know, I think we put that up there for a reason. They're all over, all over the mm -hmm. place in a lot of buildings. And it could be an opportunity to take one of those things. If you have one and spray it at somebody, you know, but they're, they're heavy too. Mm -hmm. They're heavy. They're, they're made to suck oxygen out of the air. I mean, if you're blowing a whole bunch of dust in somebody's face, it's going to create a lot of dysfunction that maybe that causes just enough time for law enforcement to get on the scene and other people to get out of there. So it's, it's pretty simple. Like, I mean, we can't draw a specific map for you how to run and get out of a space. I can't tell you exactly how to barricade and I can't tell you when you should fight, but all three of those things are kind of the, the methods that we talk about as we think about how to react and manage these situations. So Dr. Peterson, can you just share, I mean, maybe a little bit of detail about how that transpired in NIU? Sure. Yeah. It was about just a few minutes from finishing a lecture um, and you know, like I said, there was this back door on the stage that opened, and it wasn't that uncommon for that to happen, especially in the winter. So I had turned, getting ready to say, hey, we're not done yet, and the guy entered and just immediately started firing a shotgun into the, the crowd of students. And once kind of clicked what was happening, and I, I realized that door behind me was locked, and I couldn't, I was on the stage with him, so I had nowhere to hide. And he had four weapons on him. I had a laser pointer. There wasn't a lot I could really do. 
And so I, I jumped off the stage um, and was trying to crouch. Again, not really much for cover or concealment in that situation. Students are crawling and running and crowding the doors. Everybody's kind of crawling all over each other. Uh, and he's staying on the stage and he's continuing to fire. He reloaded his shotgun a few times and I was counting the shots and kind of had to make a call. Like, I can't sit here and just wait. And as we mentioned in, in our, our workshops before that, I had actually just gotten married the, the summer prior to that. And as silly as it sounds, the thought, because your brain's doing all sorts of weird stuff during these heightened moments. But the thought that literally went through my mind was, if I die here, my wife is going to kill me. You know, which is, is silly, but it, it was something like, all right, I, I, I got to get out of here. And so I waited until he was reloading again, and I kept my eye on him, and I started, you know, carefully crawling up the aisle, keeping my eye on him, staying low, and he, we made eye contact. He dropped the shotgun. He reached behind under his shirt and pulled out a, a 9 millimeter, and he fired it at me, and it hit me in the shoulder. And I realized I'd been shot, but I also realized I wasn't dead, so I keep going. And so once I got out of that building, I went to the next building over where there was a computer lab. And I told all the students there, like, there's been a shooting in Cole Hall. You know, call 911, get away from doors, get away from windows, turn the lights off. And then I just ran down the hallway of that building saying the same thing into every single classroom until eventually I ended up in the Department of History's main office. And they didn't have any idea what was going on. I told them, and I don't know why I did this. But I grabbed a piece of paper and a pencil, and there was a student in there, and I handed it to them. I said, write down everything I'm about to tell you, and I just, everything that I saw. And I don't know why I did that, but I'm glad I did, because in those heightened, heightened moments, your memory and your perspectives of things can change. And there were things I later found out were incorrect. I remembered seeing things that, like what the guy was wearing, that ended up not being accurate. But I wanted to get that out before it got any more distorted with all the chaos. So it was over very, very quickly. The entire incident took place in less than five minutes. And from the moment that first 911 call went, went out, it was 30 seconds for law enforcement to enter the space. And by then it was done. Yeah. It was very, very fast. You know, I remember you telling me that uh, a girl ran out of the room, got on a bus, mm-hmm. rode the city bus for, I don't know, maybe a couple towns away and then yeah. got off because that's where she felt safe. And you also made comment that uh, you were pretty surprised by how many people left their shoes behind. And I think yeah. th- those are two things I wanted to kind of touch on because I think, you know, wherever you feel safe is where you go. And yeah, absolutely, we teach people when you leave, leave your stuff behind because yeah. it's about keeping yourself safe. There, there were a lot of shoes and that was something I... Students take their shoes off in class. I, I don't know. That was news to me. I got my shoes off or right they now. They literally actually. ran out of them. Uh, but most people that left, yeah, I mean, nobody was sitting around trying to collect all their items. In fact, there were some laptops that showed they had received shotgun blast, but it stopped the rounds from injuring people. So that's kind of impressive. Yeah. But yeah, the things that people left behind. In fact, there was there was another graduate student in that classroom with me who was. It was my job as the grad student to lecture and his was to be like the formal note taker and like assistant. He ended up getting shot five times and survived. He's, he's perfectly fine. But he told me that when he came to, um, and you know, that the gunman was dead. He, he picked up a cell phone that somebody had that was laying on the floor and he tried to call 911 and it wouldn't go through. Circuits were all busy. 
And so he said, again, just the weird things that you do during these moments, he started collecting cell phones from around the room and just kept trying all of them until he realized he, because of his injury, he couldn't speak because uh, he got hit in the head. So he wouldn't have been able to make a call anyway and, and say anything, but he said he got outside and he had all these cell phones. He's like, what am I doing with these? So yeah. it kind of expects some odd behavior except, yeah. you know, from, from, that, uh, from the fallout of that. But the shoe thing still surprised Weird. me. Even in front of the building when students ran out, they literally ran out of their shoes in some cases. Really strange. You know, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for, I mean, this is, um, you know, Dr. Peterson, I've shared this stuff a lot. And I think it, you know, it's, I, I think it's probably a little bit healing, but it's also wearing to kind of relive this thing. And so we just appreciate you sharing sure. so people can think about how to maneuver these situations. So, sure. you know, I just want to share a few things really quick. There was a situation in Colorado. It's called the Standard Response Protocol. It's called the I Love You Guys Foundation. And I just think their content is really good. So we talk about run, hide, fight. There's some language that gets pushed out there, gets talked about publicly that I just want to share. So when people mention lockout, lockout isn't something that we would typically do at a college campus because we can't lock all of the doors. Like it's just not a thing. But usually what that means is that uh, there's a dangerous situation happening outside of a space. So if we take consideration like a K through 12 school and they say we're doing a lockout, that typically means something in the city nearby that school is dangerous and they're going to lock the entire outside of the building. I would say 99% of the schools right now are typically in lockout all the time. Like your building is basically locked and you have to be buzzed in to let in. But that's the language of lockout is they're dangerous outside the building and we're going to lock everything on the exterior so that people can't get into there. The next language that you would typically get is lockdown. This closely relates to our hide section. This basically means somebody is dangerous inside the building that you're in and they want you to lock down the spaces that you're in inside of that building to keep the danger immediately out of it. And so if you hear this language, that's really what it is. You know, stay quiet, uh, try to lock the door, look for a secondary exit out. That type of stuff is all in that lockdown platform. The next one, uh, which we've talked about this, is evacuate, but that's really there's a danger inside and you shouldn't lock down or lock out. You have to get out of there because that's the only way you're going to stay safe. So that's the lockout language. And then the last thing is shelter. And you, you may hear this, shelter in place. Shelter in place for us is probably more related to like a weather situation or a hazard I mean, weather and, and I'm going to say gas leak are things that we've experienced here at UW Oshkosh in the past. I don't know. We'll, we'll experience it this, this year. Uh, it happens regularly. And so usually what I tell folks is when we communicate and, and there's an emergency related to weather or a gas leak, you have to make a decision based on your knowledge and the information, what we shared, your proximity to that, and how you feel as a person. So if we say there's a tornado warning and the skies are bright and clear and the birds are chirping and, you know, everything is great, then, you know, you probably don't have to be immediately worried about that. But you should be thinking about how if stuff changes really quickly, you need to take a different action. If there's a gas leak and I'm in Radford and the gas leak is at Albi, do I feel safe? I mean, it really is dependent on your own perception and understanding of how you feel safe. And so we would send out information saying, hey, there's a gas leak. Here's where it's at. If you smell gas or you feel concerned about the, the proximity, you should leave. You should make a decision to go stay safe in those moments. And so we're going to get you information. You make decisions about how to manage those things. 
So generally, what we talk about is just staying alert and aware of your surroundings. You know, if you're not signed up for communications locally, whether it's on a campus or in your local jurisdiction or how you would receive information, get signed up for those things. Because if you don't know and you're unaware, you can't make decisions. You can't, you're not, you're going to be like, what's going on? And then you have to investigate and you might put yourself at risk. Here at UW Oshkosh, you can sign up for Titan Alert. We'll send you text messages. And I know there's this I'm not going to say it's completely adversarial, but I think some people get irritated by all the weather things we send out. But I'd rather you be informed. I'd rather you know exactly what's going on so that you can make those informed decisions. And then that's also how we're going to communicate about other situations that are going on. We're looking at a computer here on campus. So if something went out, we would actually put a desktop notification on that computer so you could see that. Or if you have UWO Mobile, that's another way that we can push a notification to you. If you're not a student and you're not an employee and you live close to UW Oshkosh, you could get UWO Mobile. You would get our notification so you kind of know what's going on. So those are methods that we communicate. Yeah, I would also say, too, that uh, the alerts that get sent out, especially about weather, I can see why people would be like another alert. But it's really important to take a look at those because it could be something that's not weather related. Yeah, absolutely. Making sure that you're not falling into the, uh, it's just another weather alert. Yeah, I know that it's going to snow a lot or yeah, I know it's storming, but it could be an alert that's for a different type of emergency. So I'm glad you're kind of chiming in on this one, Sergeant Dunko. So the next thing we typically talk about is our police arrival. So, you know, when law enforcement gets on scene, there's a couple things that we're working on, right? And so the first thing is we want to stop the killing. We want to stop the person from harming other people. So we're kind of seeking active intelligence that might be screaming. It might be somebody with a gun, might be people running from a certain location. And so then the next thing is we want to figure out how do we stop people from dying? So they're injured. How do we help them medically? And so I'm just interested if you could kind of talk about what does that look like? What does law enforcement, once they get on scene, what are we hoping people would do? What we're hoping to see is having officers responding to active intelligence or at least um, getting a hold of any type of active intelligence. So that could be hearing anything that would be going on that would be driving them towards that. Or if they don't hear anything, looking for any type of issues that could be people that are down in the hallway. If there's no no active shooting or anything like that, that's active killing your next driving force is going to be stop the dying so if you see somebody that's in the hallway moving towards that establishing some sort of security uh, around that area and start building a corridor to get those people out so as, a, as law enforcement comes in and people are leaving we just want them hands up running out that location um, do the best you can to make it look like you know you're okay yep. and you're you're on your way out because we're going to be looking for those people that yes. might be a problem. Yeah, if there's any pertinent information, relaying that to law enforcement, saying it's one person down here, and then that's something that law enforcement can start driving towards. Yeah, that's great feedback. And so the next thing we typically talk about here at UW Oshkosh is uh, we, we try to be super proactive with how we manage access to resources. And so... Uh, maybe five or six years ago, we partnered with Aurora Medical Center and they uh, donated a whole bunch of trauma kits or stop the bleed kits that we put out on campus. So if you're walking around in a building, they're kind of typically hanging on an AED. So if you know where the AED is, you're going to know where the stop the bleed kit is. And we used to just kind of have them hanging there. But as of recently, we're talking a little bit about the importance of those. So 
the hard part is, is that you just heard us talk about the number one priority being stop the killing. So when law enforcement gets in there, they're going to drive to that person who's causing a problem and they're going to try to stop that threat. That takes us away from the ability to help the people who have been shot in a space along the way that we pass through. We're not going to stop. If we have some sort of supply, we might drop them down. But that's where we really need our community members to have a little bit of information about how to help folks. So, you know, we typically share a little bit of information that will, this isn't a medical training, but this is just a save people's lives training, lives. And, uh, you know, so the typical person, if you're shot, and you're bleeding from some sort of a severe location, it takes about 45 seconds to lose consciousness and about two minutes to be out of blood. And so I'm just wondering, you know, you're in EMT school right now. You've done first responder medical training, which is also an alert program. Talk a little bit about some of the things that we can do with this Stop the Bleed kit to save lives. Yeah, so there's a lot of good tools that are going to be in those trauma kits. But the first thing that you can do is either calling 911 or delegating somebody to call 911. And then initial first step to stop significant bleeding is direct pressure. Uh, You want to stop that blood flow as quickly as possible because time is ticking, especially if it's a femoral artery. You're, you're going to be losing a lot of blood really quick. So time is of the essence. And then if you have access to a tourniquet, which I believe it would be in those trauma kits, you want to apply that tourniquet. High and tight is the best route to go. So if it's uh, injury to the leg, you want it as high up as possible and get it as tight, secure it, um, use the windlass, and a lot of a lot of a lot of good things can happen once that is implied or it'll stop significant bleeding fairly quickly. So Yeah, and I, I just want to talk about tourniquets a little bit too. So, I mean, in the past, tourniquets were really good. Like, we'd use tourniquets, and then there was this fear of like, oh, if you put a tourniquet on, that's going to like cause harm to the person's limb. Uh, it's That's been proven to be incorrect for quite a while now. And so tourniquets are great. But more than that, if you say, well, I'm going to hurt their leg – and you don't put a tourniquet on, but they bleed out in two minutes. Yeah. Their leg doesn't really matter at that yeah. point. So the idea is that you get that tourniquet on. If I can see that somebody was shot around their knee, I want to still put that tourniquet all the way up to basically that high crotch area of the person, uh, I mean, the top of their leg and get that as tight as possible because there may be another wound that I can't see on mm-hmm. there. So it's really important to get it all the way up there. Tourniquets are meant for legs and arms. Yep. Not for anywhere else. Nope. nope. So it um, and also too um, commonly with legs, it's going to take maybe two tourniquets. So having it up high offers enough space for that second or maybe even third tourniquet because um, there's usually a little bit more muscle there that that tourniquet is going to have to work against to apply that pressure to stop that bleeding. And not that this should be the first thing you're thinking about, but if you did put a tourniquet on somebody, do your best to remember what time it went on there so Mm -hmm. you can share that information with somebody. So if I can't use the tourniquet, what's next? You would want to apply any type of wound packing. Um, There's quick clot out there, which helps speed up the clotting process. And the real, real quick synopsis of wound packing is it's going to all of this is going to be painful applying a tourniquet applying direct pressure applying a tourniquet wound packing that's all going to be painful for the the person that you're applying this on but it's meant to save their lives so 
getting getting gauze into that wound, packing up towards the heart first first go around, and then finger over finger, and just keep on packing that wound until you have enough on top, and then continue to apply that pressure. Yeah, and then if you pack it good enough, you can use like a bandage wrap, which would be in most of these kits to wrap around that clot or that clotting agent and the the wound packing stuff. If somebody is shot in the chest. There also are chest seals in there, so you can use, it's basically like a sticker, you rip it off, you stick it over that area where there would need a chest seal, and you should try to pack that first to clot that wound and then put a chest seal on there. So these are all things that are in that kit. It's really important to understand because, again, time is important, and if it, it, honestly, if we can save a life by just having somebody help, and also I've heard for years now of doing this type of training that if somebody's involved in helping save somebody during the situation, it actually increases and helps them recover a lot faster from a situation because they've helped advance the potential of somebody surviving. So yeah. these are all really good things. Another point too with uh, those chest seals is look for exit wounds on the backside uh, because you need to apply chest seals on both sides. Otherwise, the air will continue to suck into the chest. Yeah. That's great. And then once you feel pretty good, you know, and I think you could, you know, you kind of look all over and make sure that somebody's good, get them into a recovery position, which is kind of where they're laying on their side, their, their leg is kind of over the other leg and you got their arm out so that they can breathe. And also if they end up vomiting or throwing up, it doesn't end up back in their system. Mm -hmm. The last thing we talk about is hypothermia. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, there is. I mean, Keeping blood in your in your body, that's what keeps you warm. So when you lose a massive amount of blood, you're going to start losing. Basically, your your blood is going to be shunted towards your vital organs. So your your limbs, your arms, that's going to be the first couple things for you to start losing blood. So you're going to start losing your core temperature pretty quick if you do lose a lot of blood. So keeping people warm, if there's any thermal blankets, throwing that on them. If there's any heating pads, throwing those uh, like under the armpits or in the groin area where blood flow is closest to the skin. That way, that blood, that warm blood is going back into your, your body, your core. Yeah, and I think there is a, it's like a little foil blanket inside of these trauma kits that you could certainly unwrap and use. And that just basically uses residual heat from the person to keep them warm. So use what you can, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea is just that if you can and you're willing, please do you do what you can to help go grab one of these kits. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's what you could do is go grab a kit and bring it back for somebody who then would apply and do those things. But that will certainly help save lives if you're caught in a situation like that. So and thank you so much for sharing about those medical things. So, And I'd also like to su suggest to anybody listening that if you contact your local hospital, fire department, police department, um, YMCA, a lot of these places will offer first aid training for free or you know for a very, very low cost. And that can make a huge difference too. Because yeah. maybe it's not you know, we're, we're talking about active threats, and of course, it's very relevant, but even if you're just somewhere and someone gets hurt, being able to know what to do and know what not to do can be can be really helpful. Yeah, I mean, that's a valid point. I was thinking, even this weekend, I was doing some chainsaw work in my backyard, and I'm like, man, if this thing kicks back and it hits me, I could use some help with mm -hmm. stopping that from happening. Mm -hmm. So just having those general skills is sure. a great thing to have available to you. So, you know, this is a... This is kind of the the very basic understanding about how if you're caught in a situation, you would 
be able to manage that. And earlier on, Dr. Peterson said, you know, he was shot in the shoulder and he described his co-teacher as being shot five times and both of them are alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we end up getting a little bit skewed by how we watch movies and how we watch the media. And the first thought, I mean, for a long time, as I watched a movie, I'd watch somebody get shot and then what? They're out, right? They're dead. Unless they're the good guy, which isn't reality either, you know? You typically a good guy, they'd flip over a table. And I actually was just watching a movie this past weekend. They flipped over a table and they kept table get kept getting shot and nobody was injured. And I'm like, oh, just that's not reality, right? You got to find the right things to hide behind uh, when you're shot. You're not dead. And so at this point in the presentation, we typically talk about Brian Murphy. Brian Murphy was the first responding lieutenant to the Sick Temple. Uh, I usually talk about Joe Peterson. And I mean, honestly, add his co teacher in this classroom. All three of these people have been shot in situations like this. Brian Murphy was shot 15 times. He was shot in a parking lot. Um, Now, what we just described for medical skills and some of those life-saving skills definitely saved Brian Murphy's life and likely Mm -hmm. saved, you know, your co-teacher's life. And your shoulder shot, I think, was, you know, enough for somebody where they stepped in and took some sort of um, initiative to help save their life. But... The point of this is, is that you can survive. You're not dead. You know what I mean? So think about the things that keep you alive. Think about those positive things that you live in your life that would just draw your mind to be like, yep, I'm going to make it through this. Those positive thoughts, the way that you manage that, the way that you increase your desire to fight through those situations creates something in your body that will help you survive. It's I, I could give you hundreds of stories. I can even think back to when I was in Recruit Academy, there was a guy who taught He was shot in the abdomen during a high-level call for service, and he survived. And he was like, you know, in my mind, I just kept thinking, I'm going to make it through this thing. And that drives you to make the next decision to get to that moment where you get the help you need or or survive the situation. So be positive. Think about it. You certainly can survive these types of situations. So, you know, and just to leave you with, with a couple thoughts here on this one. So first of all, thank you so much for listening. And Dr. Peterson, thanks for being in here. And Sergeant Dunkel for giving us your expertise and advice and experience. Download UWO Mobile. If you're, you're a UW Oshkosh student or an employee or you're a guest and you're going to be coming here for something, just have that app on your device. That's not the only thing to do, though. Inside there are our plans, our emergency response plans to medical situations, active threat situations, gas leaks. There are, I don't know, 10 or 15 different things in that list that kind of talk through the basic understanding of how to how to respond and react to these situations. Just read it. Just read it once. Yeah. You know what I mean? That will help you immensely in the moment of a, a situation. And so read that, uh, if you, you know, maybe read it every six months or take a few minutes. If you're teaching a class to read it to your class or point out a few things, or, you know what, take it out and read one situation at the start of every class. I don't know, but use it as an opportunity to help people because those actions may actually save some folks lives. So this is the start of a conversation. Dr. Peterson and I, we will continue to have training sessions that you can come to if you want to hear this in person and have a good discussion. I think, you know, we'll have some more of these over the summer. Absolutely. We'll have some next semester. So if you're not sure, if you have some questions, if you experience a situation that you want to talk about, please, by all means, just reach out. Uh, if you go to uwosh.edu forward slash police, you can find my information on the About Us page. And if you populate uh, either one of our emails into the Mm -hmm. UW Oshkosh email, it'll pop up. So we're willing to chat. 
and we're willing to answer any questions that you might have. But at the end of the day, yeah. we just want you to be safe. And so we appreciate you checking out our podcast. Is there anything else you guys wanted to share? I just want to thank everybody for listening. And yeah, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah. And thanks for inviting me at the table and thanks for sharing your experiences. And yeah, for those listening, thank you for listening. All right. Well, thanks everybody. And we'll see you on the next one.